0: Truth for Doubt interview series. Uh, this week we have Brett Sebold, uh, and I'll give a uh, just a little rundown of who he is. He was uh, converted to Christianity, put his faith in Christ in uh, 1994, and then soon after that, in '95, he went to the Cincinnati Christian University and got his bachelor's. Uh, then right after that, he started his not or not just his only master's degree, but his first master's degree. In biblical studies with an emphasis on the New Testament. Um, And after that, he went to Germany from 2001 to 2011, where he was also doing his second master's uh, from Lincoln University. Um, And then shortly after that, were you in Germany
1: when you started your PhD at Liberty? No, we returned, uh, and it was a couple of years after we returned. We returned right at the beginning of 11, and I Began my, or, or I finished up my second master's
0: mm-hmm. at
1: Lincoln. And then a year after that, I think it was uh, spru- uh, fall of 2013 that I began my PhD at gotcha. Lincoln University in theology gotcha. and apologetics. And
0: theology and apologetics. Awesome. And that's what you're finishing up right now. Um, other than that, you've also uh, done some French and German from different universities, uh, University of Arkansas and Cincinnati, respectively. Um, and then you did. Four years of interim pastoral ministries in the Midwest, you were an adjunct professor at Cincinnati Christian University, and you also did some teaching at, and I'm going to butcher this name, is it Caliglio Biblico? Is that right? Uh,
1: Yeah, yeah, down on the Texas-Mexico border. I'll be heading back there in April to teach a a course in uh, cults.
0: That's really exciting. That's really exciting. So did you so that you said that's at the Texas Mexico border and so was that it's is it a strictly Spanish speaking university?
1: Uh yeah, it's a, it's a little Bible college and uh, mm-hmm. several of the professors there uh were in school undergrad and uh, my first master's degree with me and we've stayed in touch over the years and so they've had me down once and I'll be going heading down a second time this April.
0: Oh, okay, that's awesome. That's really cool. Um and well, and now so you're finishing up your PhD, and you've also started K Paul. And That's right. so, so what exactly is K Paul? What are you doing <clears throat> with that?
1: Well, K Paul stands for Contact Apologetics, and uh, underneath the umbrella of a Contact Mission, as uh, Michael, you're familiar with Contact Mission, mm-hmm. and um, I, I, you know we're formulating sort of a motto, or uh, you know little saying or description of K. Paul, uh, I like to say uh, international apologetics with an individual touch. Uh, I have a heart for the post-Christian world, uh, particularly of of Europe and North America, um, Mm -hmm. but also a heavy emphasis on uh, personal evangelism, discipleship, mentoring, um, providing resources for those who are either struggling with their faith Mm-hmm. And or those who are attempting to share their faith in Jesus uh, with uh, s- skeptics and uh, different people from um, non-Christian backgrounds. Um, and we want to do this in, in multiple languages, as many as possible.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. And so are you because you were telling me a little bit about K-Paul before. Um, you're wanting to basically travel the globe and and do like conferences and and. And speeches and things like that is that right?
1: yeah I'd like to be able to do apologetic seminars and I have done several already in right. uh, I speak German and English of course and and I'm working on my French um, and I hope to be able to master French enough that I can get uh, get to the point where I can do sermons and apologetic uh, seminars in these and dialogue uh, in these three languages um, My
0: so. goodness that's that's incredible I know how to say. Um, where is the bathroom? And I'm hungry and thirsty in German. Uh, that's that's about all I got for you. Um, but but that's incredible, man. That's really exciting, and and I've I've been really excited to to see what you've been doing with K Paul and uh, and uh, you are probably also one of the most well connected people I have ever been around in my life because we were at the ICOM, the International Conference on Missions together. And the amount of people that you knew there was just astounding. You know so many people. It's incredible. Well,
1: all glory to God. I just have been blessed to be in many different settings. And um, I, I, I married into a great family. I married my wife, Heather. And her, her father's a, a pastor, preached for over 40 years, and just uh, know, been, been able to preach in lots of churches and had great—God's blessed me with great— uh, Brothers and sisters in Christ uh, around the globe.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. That's fantastic. So, well, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of throw a, a softball question at you um, right at the beginning, and I want to know what actually drew you into apologetics. Was it a particular non-believer in your life? Was apologetics uh, influential in your own, um, you know, early faith in Christ? How how did that happen?
1: Well, there there are several uh, little tidbits. When I was, before I became a Christian, I went to a youth retreat with some friends who were Christians. um, And uh, it it was, it was in Pennsylvania. And I remember going to this youth retreat and we're riding in the van. I think I was 15 or 16. And they kept talking about this guy, Josh McDowell, who was going to be speaking. And I'm like, who's Josh McDowell? And, um, you know, maybe some of the younger audience might not know Josh McDowell, perhaps, you know, his son, Sean McDowell, but Josh McDowell was going to be the main speaker at this conference. And he, I'll I'll just put it this way. He spoke for two hours. Um, then we had an intermission and his first, if I recall correctly, his first, uh, speech or message was in, he wore a suit, like a three piece suit. Then he went upstairs, uh, in the intermission and put on like a jogging suit and came down (laughs) for two more hours um and and I was just so impressed with with his knowledge his faith um he really put i hate to say it uh I don't know how to say it better he put the fear of the lord in me and um <laughs> right. and and as far as I was concerned he could have kept going for another 4 hours i did not know that you could combine uh reasoned thinking rational argument with faith in jesus i had right. never heard that before a second experience after i became a christian i was um excited about sharing my faith and I had studied the Gospels uh, very intently uh, up to my leading up to my conversion and I kept asking the question you know is this true is this really true what I'm reading about Jesus and I became convinced that it was it just seemed like the authors were saying this is Jesus as we experienced him mm-hmm. well um, I was my senior year at high school recently given my life to Christ and um I was in the band room, and I was in choir. The choir was exiting the band room while the band was coming in, and so we were mingling with the band members. And I remember this, this, this friend of mine, uh, his name was Mark Phelps. I um, actually saw him a couple years ago at one of my, uh, at, at our 20th high school uh, reunion, and, mm-hmm. and we were, I was sharing Jesus. I was talking about God. I was excited. I could, you couldn't keep me still about Jesus. And I remember Mark just looking at me and saying, prove it. Prove it, prove that God exists, prove that you know that Jesus really was a Son of God that he he rose from the grave, and I had no answer for him um, i I was stumped, mm-hmm. and I remember a good friend of mine, Jason Hills, put his hand on my shoulder and said, "Brett, I think you're done here. Um, you, know, you need to step back and and he was right because and 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 I really trace sort of the the birth of my desire to um study apologetics and not be caught in that situation again to that to that point um where, where where I couldn't. Now I can't I wouldn't tell you here 24 25 years later that I can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that God exists or that um that Jesus rose from the grave, that he was mm-hmm. a son of God, that the Bible is reliable, but I would say this. I eagerly seek out those questions mm-hmm. and I'm excited and I welcome them and I I think I react with, with, with a, with a calmness that I didn't when I was 18.
0: Right. Right. That, so I'm going to, and I think that's really interesting because that's, that's kind of similar to, to my own introduction, I guess, to apologetics is, um, is a friend of mine in high school, you know, basically saying the same thing. Like, you know, there is no empirical evidence that I can understand. And this is my friend speaking that I can see to, have any reason to believe that there is anything supernatural. So prove to me why you think that there is. And I kind of went through the same thing. I went through this kind of like this heart stopping moment of, of not only, you know, how do I prove it to my friend, but then I came to the realization that, you know, what is my own faith based on, you know, is it just based on this um, you know, this blind faith that I've had since I was uh, a kid, you know, is it I just born into it? Or is there, you know, something more there? And that's where I started wanting to to dig a little bit deeper. So I can sure. completely, completely relate to to that. I, I do want to ask you a question, though, and I did not sure. tell you I was going to ask this. It's OK. So I, I'm sorry. I hope this doesn't uh, nope,
1: uh, you're mess you're
0: or anything. But um, so, you know, throughout the Course of of Christianity and its relationship to you know philosophy. You have these people who are always trying to understand the relationship between faith and reason, um, and you see different answers to that through you know Augustine or Aquinas or or John Locke. All these different people. Um, what what would you say is the relationship between faith and and reason?
1: I, I think uh, God gave us reason. Uh, As a gift, I I think Mm -hmm. it is uh, foolish to assume that only since the Enlightenment are we actually using reason, and that reason necessarily leads us to the conclusion that God, the belief in God, is irrational. Mm I I'm gonna cheat and go to the scriptures here, just because I think it triangulates. So nicely, not just not because the scriptures are the only place where we can find evidence for God. I think it is the best place to find evidence for God. I think Jesus is our best evidence for God's existence. Mm -hmm. But when when uh, when Jesus is asked what the greatest command is, um, he answers by quoting the Shema Israel here. O Israel, the Lord, your God is one. Love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, I, I believe God has given us a mind, and ability to think. Um, and, and, and the mind is not just the brain, but they certainly interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I believe that God has given all peoples across the globe the ability to look at things and reflect upon them and, and, and in, do inductive reasoning and deductive reasoning and, and come to conclusions. Now, that doesn't mean that we always get things Right, but I think it's possible to make sense, at least to a degree, of the world around us, the reality we're in, and I believe that's because God gave us um, uh, what's what's the faculties that are not only truth seeking, um, but are also able to obtain truth, at least to a level to where we can uh, say yes, that which I believe can fit with. Which that which I'm thinking or, or or reasoning, and so I think the two fit well, of course, yeah. there are thing are limits and areas where we where we know we we don't have all the answers um mm-hmm. and we do mm-hmm. there there is room for faith um there
0: right, but i think right.
1: it's a good it's a good room it it's a good space it's not it's not a a thing that we need to be afraid of
0: yeah absolutely absolutely, and I don't think it's a uh and those gaps are often you know cited as you know you're just believing in the god of the gaps you know i think it's a little bit different than than that um, can i
1: say something to that uh, real real briefly
0: absolutely
1: a lot of times when we hear uh, people speak of the god of the gaps what i suspect is happening is we're focusing in on one argument for god's existence take for example the cosmological argument that is Mm -hmm. that the universe has a beginning and we're we're quite confident that it does have a beginning i mean we see the universe expanding Mm -hmm. um scientists uh um astronomers will talk about this red shift um that is expect that would be expected if there was sort of a, a what some people might call the big bang or an initial like Explosion, which I think is best explained by theism and not atheism, right, um, right? Because you'd have to have something outside of it that set set that in motion, powerful, powerful enough, and um, able to guide the the precise uh, measurements that had to happen for life to even be possible in this mm-hmm. in this universe. Um, but oftentimes, when we hear the God of the Gaps thrown at us, we're looking at one thing, um, maybe like the cosmological argument, and they're saying, "Look, you're just throwing God in there." to to answer a question where you don't have any other uh, support for. But actually, uh, when we look at the Christian worldview as a whole, we're not just looking at one argument, say the cosmological argument. We're looking at a whole plethora of arguments, both inside and outside of Scripture. Mm -hmm. And so if if we see an almighty, uh, all-knowing, all-loving, perfect being... As a good explanation for all of these different arguments, and right. he's the one that's testified to in Scripture, I would say we're not making a God of the Gaps argument. We're just, at best, um, putting the cumulative case together and exactly. saying, "Well, if it makes sense over here, why can't it make sense over here?"
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I was the entire time you're thinking that, or you were saying that. I was thinking that it's it's really it's not a just a one-off argument. You know, we don't believe these different arguments is uh, evidence for God in a vacuum in and of itself. Exactly. It's the, the cumulative effect of all of these different arguments yes. that fit perfectly together in one cohesive unit uh, as as a reason to believe in God. And it's not just this one particular thing. I mean, you have the moral argument, you have the um, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, all of these you know, mm-hmm. big fancy words for all these different types of arguments sure. that that lend itself to to <clears throat> evidence for not only God but the specific God of the Judeo-Christian faith. Right. So, yeah, and that kind of—I mean, honestly—that kind of leads me straight into you know the the main thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is your dissertation for your PhD, um, which I thought is is fascinating. So instead of me butchering it. Um, why don't you you explain in like a, the however long you want to explain it in your uh, your dissertation, because I think it's, it's amazing.
1: Well, thank you, Michael. But I'll, I'll be honest. I'm still butchering it myself. But it is <laughs> but it is something, um, you know, uh, a good a good friend of mine told me, don't don't go for a Ph.D. unless you're you know, you're sure yeah, that you can do this, that you should do this. Don't, don't do it just to get like credentials or anything. Mm -hmm. Make sure that there's something that you're passionate about. And and if you're a a Christian, make sure that you can integrate this into your belief system, into your service for God.
0: Mm -hmm. So
1: I in no way, shape or form, um, want to ever encourage, you know, academics as the only route for the for for Christians, it is not mm-hmm. for every it is not for everyone. Um, but I do believe that um, if we're going to do it, we need to do the best that we can. Um, I would point out, just as a side note, I was a C student in in high school. Um, mm-hmm. For uh, you know, average grades were C's, and uh, after um, gave my life to Christ, God kind of turned that around and really gave me a heart for for a, a deeper study and uh, I want to use it to, to bless other people and, and reach the world. So my, my thesis, my dissertation, when I, back in 2004 when we were serving in Germany, I, uh, I became interested in uh, around every Christmas and Easter, I would find these articles, and I know this happens in the United States, but this really happens, I, I found it quite prevalent in Europe. Um, I found these articles ar- about Jesus Uh, And they were usually asking, you know, the question: um, Is there any something to the effect? Is there any relevance to belief in him anymore? Now, the reason I found this so odd is because, for example, Germany has maybe give or take two to three percent, we might say, evangelical or Bible believing or uh, committed Christian um, population. Um, Now, you know, there's some the conservative Catholics might bring that number up a little bit. It's it's really hard to measure it, but but for the most part, Germany is is apathetic towards uh, traditional Christian the traditional claims of Christianity and or atheistic, agnostic, atheistic, apathetic. Um, I've got one article, uh, just the title here in front of me from the from Der Spiegel, which is sort of the main German magazine. It was in, I think it was. Uh, I can't see the date here, but the question was "Was bleibt von Jesus Christus?" Uh, you might translate that: "What remains of Jesus Christ?" And, and and it's you know is they're asking: Is it a myth, or or what what about this myth that shaped the world? Mm-hmm. Now I found it interesting that the largest magazine in Germany was continually needing to ask, or for some reason feeling obligated, or interested in asking these types of questions around Christmas and Easter in a country that is essentially post-Christian.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Why You've already convinced the majority of your population that this, that this guy, Jesus, was not the Son of God, that He didn't do miracles, that, that he, he wasn't anything spectacular. Why ask this question? Uh, another one, uh, just here, I'll share one other one, um, it was by uh, Titanic, and the question is, does Jesus still have a role to play? Well, why, again, why ask the question if, if, uh, you don't, if the majority of your population doesn't believe? And I started to get to, think, to thinking, and it seemed to me that there was something about Jesus that post-Christian society uh, couldn't get rid of. There was something about him that just wouldn't go away. They couldn't get him to disappear. Mm -hmm. And so this, uh, I got, I became tremendously curious about this. And I started collecting all of these magazines and it wasn't just about Jesus. It was other uh, topics of the Bible. I think I have some on King David. They were disputing his existence and, you know, the whole um, different, different things, the whole creation, evolution debate and whatnot. But, but uh, particularly focused on Jesus, I started to look at these. Well, I started the, so I, this this idea of Jesus um, refusing to uh, sort of disappear sort of got lodged in my mind, and I'll i read just a just a, a couple sentences here from a recent presentation I did on this, and and I'm hopefully, Lord willing, going to start officially start my dissertation this coming fall. I've got one more seminar and my comprehensive exams, but I write this. In spite of the dominant post-Christian mindset, Jesus is proving quite difficult to get rid of, comparable to the stickiness of glue on your hand or he's tucked away in a compartmentalized and compartmentalized in the back of minds of Western society. Jesus Christ continues to haunt the post-Christian mindset. Our Western world doesn't want him, but simultaneously struggles to get rid of him. And so I, you've got the area of the media. Another area I found, um, I discovered, and this more uh, a bit recent, uh, more uh, recently, is the area of comedy. So maybe um, you've heard of uh, the comedian Jim Gaffigan. Michael, yeah, Have you heard yeah. of Jim Gaffigan?
0: Of course, yeah.
1: <clears throat> well, he does a bit. He does a co- uh, a comic bit in on his album Beyond the Pale. Um, and he toys with the distinction between Jesus, the carpenter, and Jesus, the Messiah. And he imagines Jesus, the carpenter, claiming, and, and I'll do my best to imitate Gavin <laughs> I'm excited I'm to hear of, this. I'm the son of God. And, and, and a cynical <laughs> voice responds, well, right now you're building a cabinet. Hop to it, Jesus. And, <laughs> at which the crowd laughs. Um, and Joking that Jesus might have been an awful carpenter, a sarcastic voice explains, it's a good thing that Messiah thing worked out for you. And now later on in the bit, Gaffigan jokes about uh, trying, to, trying to buy, a, uh, um, somebody's trying to buy a gift for Jesus, right? And he imagines someone buying him a pair of socks, right? And in an airy, sarcastic voice, Gaffigan then imitates Jesus saying, "Oh, oh, socks, gee, thanks you know I'm dying for your sins, right? And the crowd just starts laughing, um, and and it occurred to me, these jokes function because the crowd, doubtfully made up uh, exclusively of confessing Christians or, you know, believers, but Mm -hmm. they sort of subconsciously affirm um, the minimal facts of Jesus' messianic claims and the early Christian belief that his crucifixion was of sacrificial and theological significance. In mm-hmm. other words, the joke in indirectly exposes subconscious belief in the key aspects of the biblical portrait of Jesus. Now, um, w- so what I'm what I'm saying is that the post-Christian mindset has has sort of rejected Jesus, but it hasn't really gotten away completely from the biblical portrait of him. It sort of suppressed that biblical portrait. Right. And these jokes by Gaffigan or these uh, these media portrayals of Jesus or these questions in, in um, populations where you have very, very low committed Christians, low percentage of Christ- committed Christians, these things, I believe, expose the fact that Jesus is really hard to get rid of, that he sort of sticks in the back of our minds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the main part of my dissertation, I'm going to look at, um, I'm gonna look at s- some of these, these media types and different aspects. I'll look at comedy briefly. But the main thing, the main part, the main bulk of my dissertation, I plan to study the development of what I call, um, and others have called, negative higher criticism of Bible and particularly, or in general, and in particular, Jesus. Um, how skeptics, since uh, about the time of the birth of the Enlightenment, have viewed Jesus down through the centuries until now. And, and I found some, some interesting things. In fact, I, I can't even really claim to uh, have found them myself. I found a few of them on my own, but most of this is, is general knowledge to theologians who have actually studied this. Most people, you know, average uh, churchgoers, you know, don't, um, don't think about these things and that's fine. But I want to, I want to bring this out and expose this because mm-hmm. it, I, I find it fascinating, fascinating. So it's going to start in the, in the 1700s, the 18th century with a guy named, um, uh, And he was going to be the, like the first person to separate between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. So he becomes skeptical of of the biblical portrait of Jesus. Now, his family, they were uh, German believers and very pious, and he didn't want to sort of embarrass them. So he didn't publish his writings. A guy that came after him by the name of Lessing is going to find them in the Wolfsburg library and bring them out. And publish them, but he's going to publish them under someone else's sort of an alias, someone else's name, as to attempt to not to attempt to uh, defame or embarrass um, Raimarus's family. Right? Lessing's going to get in trouble because still at that time the church um, was a bit more, you know, confessional, a bit more believing, mm-hmm. and um, and so there, it's going to be a struggle to sort of bring out their um, their critical views. <coughs> excuse me, but eventually uh, it's going to catch on. So um, these guys are, are going to say, look, they're going to start, they're going to be capt- captivated with um, enlightenment, rationalism, and empiricism, and they're going to say, look, I can't believe that Jesus actually did miracles when I don't exper- experience them myself. Um, some will refer to that as the, they viciously applied um, the, the argument of analogy. If it didn't happen in my life, well, how could it have happened back then? Mm-hmm. Well, and I point out at that point, well, that's the whole point of a miracle. They're, they're, they don't. It's not a daily occurrence right, uh, in, right. in our lives. It's it's there to get our attention, and uh, it, it shouldn't surprise us that it happened a lot around the Son of God. After Lessing came a guy named uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, mm-hmm. and Schleiermacher, he's going to want to hang on um, to like Christian. Uh, piety. He's going to want a sort of this Christian morality. He wants to be a good person, but he's going to change the definition of a miracle to to this idea that um, it's just sort of a feeling of total dependence on God, and um, it's not it's not necessarily a supernatural event, um, but this experience of God's immediate presence. So, it at this shift, this is going to be around the. The turn of the century, from the um, the eighteenth to the nineteenth century, so around 1800, and Christianity is now um, among, among academic circles uh, on the continent in Europe are going to be. It's going to begin to be viewed as one of many religions.
0: Right, right. Even
1: from within, like the theological circles.
0: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: again, the church is still. Believing a bit more conservative, a lot of the pastors are still believing, and there there's going to be some initial resistance to what we might consider this this liberal theology that's uh birthing but it, it's interesting as we keep going, a guy named David Strauss will come along he's going to live from about eighteen o eight to eighteen seventy four now something really amazing about strauss um I, this is this is something that that just it caught my attention when I was reading his uh, book, um, das, I think it's called Das Leben Jesus, the Life of Jesus. Um, he and some other of, it, of his books, he um, he didn't want to retain the the piety, the the feeling of religious um, morality and piety that Schleiermacher did, and he he's going to basically say that Christianity was dead. It was a legend, right? Right. There was nothing left to be done except to systematically sort of disprove all of the supernatural aspects of the text and the faith, but basically the world could move on and abandon the Bible and the church. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, and, and he, after this declaration, he's going to stop writing for about two decades, about 21 years, right? He was convinced that he had buried Christianity, but for some odd reason— after 21 years of silence, he felt the urge to begin writing again. And um, I've got to dig into this a little bit more, um, but it seems to me, uh, especially when I, was, when I was reading more on him, I don't have a lot of it on, off the top of my head, but I do remember thinking, there's for some reason, he feels the urge to keep writing about Christianity, about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and so that thought came back to me. There's, there's, there's something about Jesus that just won't go away. Right, we can't get right. rid of him. Why is it that David Strauss picked his pen back up? After him, a little bit later, comes a guy named Rudolf Bultmann. He lives 80, from 1884 to 1976. I remember him because he, he dies in the year I was born. Um, he's going to sort of attempt to demythologize the New Testament. He's going to do a lot in the area of form, criticism. He's going to try to get behind the New Testament to the historical Jesus um, and he, de- he declared things like, we cannot simultaneously utilize electricity and claim to believe in the revelations and miracles, things right, like that. Right. But it's interesting, despite that, he, he rejecting Jesus' miracles, he believed that Jesus was convinced of his own miracles, sort of a, an odd thing to hold. Um, and he believed, though, that people should still take a leap of faith, that there is sort of like an existential experience to be had. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if there is a god, sort of sort of like um Schleiermacher. After Boltmann, um, I, I've I've studied a little bit. Um, and this this guy is still with us. His name is Gaud Ludemann. Um, he was born in 1946 and still w- with us. It's interesting, he was at the University of Göttingen where we were doing campus ministry and where I did my Hebrew studies, and I actually got to know his uh, graduate assistant. We played some basketball together, and Gerd Ludemann, if I'm not mistaken, uh, still teaches sometimes at the uh, universe, uh, at Vanderbilt University here in Nashville, mm-hmm. and so it's weird. So I've kind of followed him from the ger- his German location to his to his American location uh, unintentionally, but it's just kind of happened that way. Um, but Gerd Ludemann is going to come up with the idea that Paul invented the resurrection. Hmm. and then was able to convince others, like, like Peter and the others, that he was actually resurrected. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he said he had guilty feelings for um, persecuting the Christians in the early church, and so he does it based on Romans uh, 7. I've written a couple papers about this, and I also um, I got to talk to William Lane Craig in person about this, because he's, oh, wow. he's, he's debated uh, Ludemann, on this topic. Uh, I, either I don't know if they did it in person or ba- just emailing back and forth. And I also know that uh, N.T. Wright has engaged Ludemann on, on this issue. <clears throat> but um, I, it's interesting, you keep, you keep going through this history of negative higher criticism, go from Gerd Ludemann to a guy named John Dominic Crossan. Crossan is going to say uh, yet again something different about Jesus. Jesus was not buried, rather he was tossed in a common pit or eaten by wild dogs. Hmm. Um, he, he. I think he says this because someone who died on the cross was so despicable that there's no way he would have been buried in a in a known tomb, um, you know, such as Joseph Joseph of Arimathea or something like this. Yep. Um, and I got to ask him a question um, one time face to face. Very intimidating man for only being about five foot seven or five foot eight, <laughs> about 120 pounds, sopping wet. Very brilliant man, John Dominic Crossan. But he too. Had a sort of a different take on Jesus, Bart Ehrman, 1955 to he's still with us. He claims now get this he claims there are too many discrepancies in the early Greek New Testament manuscripts so that we can't actually reconstruct the original New Testament documents. Now notice this, Michael, um, Boltmann said we have the original text. But they are myth laden, and we so we have to get rid of the mythological aspect of that. Right. Um, Strauss would say, um, you know, it was legendary. Uh, Reimarus said um, it was fraudulent. Ludemann said that Paul made it up. And here Ehrman's saying we don't even have the original texts. We don't know right. what the first right. Christian believed. And so here's my point: How is it? How is it that the brightest minds of over 200 years of liberal theology, cannot agree on who Jesus was. Right, right. Why is it so hard to figure out what happened to Jesus, yet they are so curious about him? Now, Paul Tillich sort of echoes, I think, what I'm saying here. Um, He says, "...but seen in the light of its basic intention, the attempt of historical criticism to find empirical truth about Jesus of Nazareth was a failure." the negative higher critics attempt to find the historical Jesus could not get them behind the sources. They, they really, they failed at that. Ernst Kasemann he wrote a book called Das Problem des Historischen Jesus, the problem of the historical Jesus. Well, why does he, why does he call it a problem? Why is it, why does it persist to be a problem? Why can't the brightest minds of theology and history solve the riddle of Jesus's identity? Right. And, but yet they're still curious about him. Crossen. John Dominic Crossan, that intimidating Irish priest uh, I told you about, who's just a little guy, um, but very, um, very brilliant. Um, he says historical Jesus research becomes a bad joke because we, can't get, we cannot get to Jesus. Everyone's got their own version of him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, I, and so I'm asking the question, what other historical figures ever cause such a conundrum that, that we're still wrestling about and it still sort of plagues us that um, we feel the need to write articles about him, even though the majority of, um, our, say, Germany doesn't believe in him anymore, or France or England, and it's becoming that way in North America. Why is it that at Christmas and Easter, we still feel the need to talk about Jesus? <clears throat> um, it's uh, this guy named Werner Kelber right, puts it this way, and this is my translation, the diversity of the portraits of Jesus um, is undeniable. So it's undeniable that there, that there are all these different versions of Jesus, mm-hmm. but the inability to abandon the historical inquiry inquiry into Jesus is just as palpable. So on one hand they can't agree, but on the other hand, they can't seem to just hang, hang, uh, uh throw in the towel,
0: right? hang up the right. gloves.
1: Um, like, uh, like, um, David Strauss experienced. There's something about Jesus that, uh, people, that keeps the, the skeptics going. Um, Albert Schweitzer, in his book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, write, writes this, but it was not only each epoch that found its reflections in Jesus. Each individual created him in accordance with his own character. There is no historical task which so reveals a man's true self as the writing of a life of Jesus. I think it's so telling. I mean, Mm -hmm. he's saying, look, we got to be honest. We are reading our own skepticism into Jesus. We're reading ourselves into Jesus. Um, And if anybody's listening out there that wants to do a really, a really cool experiment, Google, um, Google this, Google, uh, what's his name? Oh, goodness, i got to find it. Richard Dawkins and, and Atheists for Jesus. There's a picture online of Richard Dawkins standing in front of an ocean wearing a T-shirt that says Atheists for Jesus. Um, it, I have it here on, on my computer. It's, it's fascinating. Why would the leading atheist of the first part of this century, we, some might say, feel compelled to wear a T-shirt, Atheists for Jesus.
0: Right, right.
1: Do we do that with, with any other historical figures? Or, or if he is, you know, as some skeptics say, mythological that he never existed, very, very few skeptics take that stance. Uh, right. Richard, Carri- Richard Carrier does. But even, even like some of the other skeptics I've mentioned, they would never have said that Jesus never existed. That's just mm-hmm. preposterous. They would say... However, um, um, why, why, why is there such a fuss about Jesus? Mm-hmm. And so I want to get to the bottom uh, of this. The last thing, I uh, um, let, me, let me share one more quote from Thomas Cahill. Yeah, this absolutely. is a good one. <clears throat> and then I'll, I'll talk about the final part of my, my dissertation. Thomas Cahill, he wrote the book, Desire of the Everlasting Hills. And he writes this, in all the tragic drama of antiquity, whether lived or tagged, we detect the same pattern. Hero, be he Alexander or Oedipus, reaches his pinnacle only to be cut down. Only in the drama of Jesus does the opposite pattern hold. The hero is cut down only to be raised up. And, and it's just, if you think about that, it's so true. Mm-hmm. You, you, in, in antiquity, you have a hero... At the top of his or her game, right? And when they're cut down, well, then they sort of, um, you know, they they lose their power, they they lose their glory. Now, there there might be legends that will develop them and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But Jesus, on the other hand, he died on a, a cross, which would have been totally embarrassing. Um, right. There, there was no glory in that. And if if the gospels are true. He, he, at best, went around preaching for maybe three to four years. Mm-hmm. Um, some even say less. Some count that, you know, say it might have only been one or two. Right. Um, but a very short time, either way. And he never wrote anything. How is it that everybody, modern scholarship, is still sort of haunted by him, plagued by him? So you've got the, the comedy. You've got the... Um, the, the media the articles that I found the the different um, uh, you know, aspects of Jesus popping up in the media, mm-hmm. and then the the history of negative higher criticism of Jesus, and the final aspect, which I hope to do, um, I hope to travel around Europe and in French, German, and English conduct interviews with um, skeptics to see if I can't um, sort of draw the biblical portrait of Jesus sort of out of the back of their minds.
0: Right, uh, right.
1: I want to do sort of an empirical study to see see if I can confirm my hunch, namely that even non-believers, atheists, agnostics still have the biblical portrait of Jesus tucked mm-hmm. away in the back of their minds. And so I'm already connecting with some of my uh, my Christian friends all over Europe and saying, hey, do you have some, do you have a, a skeptic friends that I could sit down with for 20 minutes or half an hour and just, um, you know, share maybe a dozen questions and see if I can't, can't create some, uh, or find some empirical evidence that the biblical portrait of Jesus is still in the back of the, um, post-Christian mind mm-hmm. mindset. And so, um, hopefully that will happen in, in 2020. um, I, I, it, it definitely will be an empirical study. Uh, I'm not. It is academic. I'm not trying to uh, to convert anybody. Mm-hmm. Although you know, if if the conversation comes up and and someone looks views Jesus from a different perspective, I'm I'm excited about that. But right. this is primarily an academic um, study in in apologetics, theology, a little mm-hmm. bit of sociology, miss, missiology. And, and I'm I'm really excited about that. So <clears throat> those are the sort of like the four aspects of my of my dissertation for sections I would say
0: yeah yeah no that's that's absolutely fascinating and so would you say that going off of all of that getting down to the uh, the fundamental reason why Jesus doesn't go away is is yeah he's obviously a, a real historical figure and we would say the reason that he hasn't gone away is because he is who he says he is and that has had a lasting impact on uh, on on you know, history as we know it, Um, would you also say that it would, maybe it has to do with, uh, you know, being made in God's image? And so there's this, there's this philosopher named uh, Simone Weil, or Weil, I'm not sure if she's German, so I don't know if you would turn that W to a V, but uh, Simone Weil, and she says that everyone has this longing for order, and you can't explain what that longing comes from. And well, I would suggest that well, it's because you know they are longing for the ultimate order that comes from Jesus Christ. You know, He is the the Word made flesh. He is um, you know the the great Logos. Um, and and there are they are longing for that, even though they, as Roman one says, they suppress that longing. Uh, would you say that it would possibly be similar in this regard as well? That they. The reason why Jesus can't get out of their mind is because, well, they're made in the image of God, and so they they long to know him or they long for him, and yet they repress him and they try to shove down the evidences as as hard as they can to to cover that up.
1: I, I think that's a that that's the way I would sort of interpret that. Now, I want to be careful. I don't want to claim that you know i I know this with absolute certainty, but sure. yeah, that that's sort of the direction I'm leaning now, I do want to, uh, not to pick on you. Oh, I wanna, yeah, yeah. No worries. I want to unpack your question a little bit because there's a, if you're not familiar with apologetics, and you are, but mm-hmm. it's someone listening maybe isn't, you, in your question there, you, you've put something fascinating in there. You were going back and forth between what we might consider um, natural revelation yeah. and um, special revelation. Right. Natural revelation being sort of, you know, those, those philosophical arguments, um, you know, how design maybe points to a designer, how, Mm -hmm. um, the, um, the first start of the universe starts to uh, points to someone who's above that or transcendent of it to initiate it. morality points to, um, transcendence, things like that. There's another argument in there. And I won't, it's, it's a little too complicated to unpack it here. It's known as the ontological argument. Right, right. And, yeah. and it's, it, it's, it's, it's not as, uh, a lot of people don't like it, a lot of apologists don't like it as much as the other three. I mm-hmm. happen to uh, find it fascinating, but it, it basically, in a nutshell, you know, toys with the idea, why is it that we can so easily conceive of a God? Yeah. Even, even the, the one denying God, knows what he or she is denying has a referent for that being and doesn't really struggle to um, know that that being which he or she is denying we mm-hmm. might think of Psalm 141 the um, where it talks about those who, de- who deny God mm-hmm. um, now I find it interesting because I have often wrestled when thinking about the ontological arguments um, which is basically I can't conceive of a of a, of a higher being than God, and 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 to be the highest being, you you know, um, Anselm made this argument: existence mm-hmm. would have to be part of of his predicate or description or skill set or being, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Existence would have to be, right. because if you don't exist, well, you're obviously not the highest being.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's greater to exist than not to exist. Right.
1: Exactly. And as soon as you say, well, that being doesn't exist, you can still imagine a being greater than that than right, the one right. who does. And yeah so that it's it, it is kind of circular and that's one of the reasons people don't like the argument, but it's really right. fascinating and and it's fun to get that argument in your head and like walk through the woods and just walk in circles and um wrestle with that it, it, I do think like you said, we are created in god's image and and I think it is it's amazing how simp- how simply we humans can conceive of of this being God.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I also find it fascinating that in the post christian mindset we have rejected Jesus, we've, we've pushed him back, we've suppressed him, as you've said, yet we can so easily bring him back up, that right, biblical portrait right. of him, yeah. and it's exposed in the comedy, in the in the media, in the fact that the brightest minds of theology are unable to come to a consensus about who he was or who he was not. Actually, those of us who have shared consensus on who Jesus was, it's mm-hmm. Eastern Orthodox uh, uh believing Roman Catholics and um, the rest of us Protestant um, you know evangelical christians whatever however you want to describe us basically those of us who start with yes the the Bible tells us about who Jesus actually was we don't really we, we disagree on a lot of things but we rarely sure. disagree about about Jesus who he was what he what he did what he said and i and I uh, conclude your question with a verse, uh, attributed to Jesus, uh, from Matthew 16, 18, he's talking with, um, Peter, and, uh, I think, um, either the 12 disciples or the inner circle, they're discussing, you know, who, who do the crowds say that I am? Um, and, you know, some say, um, Elijah, some say another prophet and whatnot, and, uh, Jesus starts to talk about, um, you know, or Peter confesses, you, we believe, you know, like you're the Christ, the son of the living God or something like this. And, and Jesus, you know, says, uh, basically applauds him and says, um, Peter, you know, uh, you're my rock. Or, uh, and, and I think he's, you know, emphasizing more the confession necessarily than, than Peter himself. I'm not suggesting like, like my Roman Catholic friends do, that, that Peter was the first pope or something like this. But he says, the fact, uh, upon this rock, I will build my church. And then he says this, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Mm -hmm. If negative higher criticism of the Bible and of historical Jesus, of the biblical portrait of Jesus, is in some way or in any way can be likened to the gates of Hades, I believe we are seeing it not prevail over the biblical portrait of Jesus. Right, right, absolutely. We can't, and, and we have... A historical, modern um, unfolding of really um, high-powered attempts to get rid of him, and it's not working.
0: Right. Right. Man. Gosh, well, we need to have a part two to this conversation, because this is absolutely fascinating. And, and there's, I feel like we could go way deeper into this and, and explore it more. But uh, we're running out of time, and I want to ask you one more question uh, real quick, that's sure. it's more, I guess, more practical and more focused on people who are, you know, maybe dabbling into apologetics for the first time, or they've they've never heard of apologetics before, and they want to know how they can best um, reach their unbelieving friends who do have some of these questions. So, what is some practical advice that you would that you would give to our Christian brothers and sisters um, who, are, who are just starting out on on some of this stuff?
1: Sure. I'll give you uh, three things. Number one, I'm going to steal from, from Peter. Uh, I believe it's 1 Peter 3.15. He says, um, you know, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give um, reasons for the hope that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we get that Greek, that Greek word apologia, uh, where we get apologetics, sort of give a reason, give a defense for your faith. But then he adds this, this key line, do it with gentleness and respect. Yeah. Remember, if you, do, if, you are, if you do go into apologetics, it's not just to—we're not just doing this to, you know, be smart or to show how we can best someone in an argument. No, no, no. God loves people. Um, mm-hmm. he, he actually cares about these people. He cares about us. He cares about everyone. And he cares about the ones with whom you are dialoguing. So make sure, no matter what— that you always respect uh, the person you're talking with and, and love them and be kind to them. Um, I think Robbie Zacharias puts, puts it this way and I'm going to butcher him. Um, be able to differentiate between the idea and the, and the person,
0: right? If, yeah. if
1: somebody is, is holding a, what we consider to be a false idea or a faulty idea, go after the idea, but don't, but don't go after the person. Right, uh, right. And I and I have made that mistake before and I'm I'm, I'm still learning at that another another um, I, I, uh, thing is um, be prepared to study and do it to God's glory. Don't mm-hmm. don't. This is this is a service. This is doing the work of an evangelist or a teacher. Um, this is do this to the glory of God. And don't just um, don't just expect to be able to do this. Um, easily, you're going to have to work at it. And it's going to take time. I'm still learning. And I've been, and I've been doing this for, you know, since I've become a Christian, like 25 years ago or so. So, and, and finally, I'd say this, get started before you know everything. And by the way, you'll never know everything. <laughs> right, right. Don't, don't worry about not having all the answers. The, the Bible tells us we won't have all the answers. It says we we know in part, but when the perfect comes, we will know as as we are known. First um, Corinthians uh, 13, I believe it is. So we don't know everything, but mm-hmm. use the dialogues you have with your your skeptic friends and whatever religious background or philosophy or worldview they come from. Use that as an as fuel for learning. Yeah, um, it's it's okay, especially if we're dialoguing and building relationships, which we should be, not not trying to convince people in one two minute. Um, presentation of our faith, um, we're building these dialogues. We can always revisit the conversation. We can Mm -hmm. tell people, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. Let me get back to you. Or let me think about that. Well, I I guarantee you, if we, if we take that approach, we're going to be more trustworthy. We're going to be more authentic. We're going to, I think, earn more respect instead of acting like we have to defend everything tooth and nail um and 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 presume to know everything because we don't we don't we're we're on a journey we're discovering we're learning um and and it's okay to admit we don't know everything just keep going Uh, get started keep going thank you michael
0: Yeah, no problem. Um, So, yeah, and lastly, um, is there anything – how can people who are listening right now find you? How can they find out about you and support you
1: and all that good stuff? Well, I am – Contact Mission, I would say, is a submission of – I'm sorry, K-Paul is a submission of Contact Mission. Um, And so you can go to their website, www.gokmusa.org. Um, you can find me on there, as well as many other fine ministries like Truth for Doubt and other missionaries around the globe and missions uh, things. Um, maybe your maybe your thing isn't apologetics. Maybe it's church planning or something else, and that's great. Um, look me up on Facebook. I use Facebook as a ministry network. Um, if you don't like Facebook, my email address. Feel free to email me. It's uh, contacts with a K. With two Ks, contactapologetics at gmail.com. Feel free to email me. That's contactapologetics, uh, with, spelled with Ks, because it's Kontakt like in, in German, uh, at gmail.com. Um, but uh, best way is find me on Facebook, uh, Facebook Brett Siebold, And uh, I, I love the dialogue. I love to hear from you. And uh, don't hesitate. I'll, I'll do my best to get back as soon as possible.
0: Awesome, awesome, Brett. This was an amazing interview, and we definitely need to do it again, man.
1: Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate it, and uh, keep up uh, the good work at uh, Truth redoubt Doubt.
0: Yeah, thank you, thank you, man. And we will we will talk again soon, no doubt. Take care. Bye. Right. Bye, bye.